Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Skeletor, get in here. It's Gregor, Dr. Wolfenstein. I'm about to climb into my time machine, and then I'll need you to set the dials. You invented a time machine? Me? No, some guy named Ron Mallet invented it. I'm the only person who's willing to fuel it. What does it run on? Kittens and bunnies. You're using kittens and bunnies as fuel in a time machine? Do you want to say that a little louder so that everybody who works at PETA and 60 Minutes can hear you? Look, if the time machine ran on coffee beans, I'd be happy to use those. It happens not to. Mallet is too soft to use, let's call them K and B. But the way I see it, Stinkor, you can be Mr. Rogers or you can make scientific breakthroughs. Now, once I get in, set the dials for Sicily in 1788. Why are you going there? I'm going to invent pizza. It's the most popular food in the world, but I can make sure it's named after me. I can hold patents on it and charge insane prices. I can rule the world. (laughs) Shouldn't you do something good instead? Like prevent a horrible disaster? Sorry, Lipitor. I can't hear you over the sounds of the machine. Oh, I'm also going to marry Prince Alfonso, Count of Caserta. He's super cute. Have the intern Google him. You killed the intern and put his brain in a kangaroo. Then tell him to hop to it. (laughs) Here I go, forward, into the past. She's gone. But nothing has changed. If this machine worked, the present would be different. Wow, this whole thing made me hungry. Hello? Wolfenstein Flatbread Hut? Can I get a large wolf pie? Roasted peppers, anchovies, and kitten. And that'll be how much? $800. That's great. Meanwhile, let's all listen to this show about time machines and pizza. And now... Hold on. Thank you, and here's your tip. What did we do before we had super intelligent human kangaroo hybrid pizza delivery guys? Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Colin McEnroe. See, usually before we did the time travel thing, uh, somebody would say my name. Uh, Today we're doing an unusual thing. We're going to kind of, well, speaking of time machines, we're going to go back to some of our former guests and see what they're doing now. So later in the show, you're going to hear from a New Haven-based writer and filmmaker, Gorman Bouchard. You know Gorman. Uh, And he's making two different documentaries, one about an abused dog and what that led to, uh, and the other about the history of New Haven pizza. Um, and in just a second, we're going to talk to Ron Mallet, who's a UConn physics professor. But before that, I want to just tell you about something else that we're doing, as long as I have this opportunity. On October 20th, we're going to do a special edition of the show in which we're going to discuss one book. And we're kind of inviting you to join us in a book club. So we're going to re- read Jonathan Franzen's Purity. I'm telling you now because, you know, you want to have time to get the book and read it. You'll enjoy the show so much more if you have gotten the book and read it. And you'll be able to call in and we'll have panelists who've all read it. And I think it'll be fun. So anyway, consider Consider this fair warning. October 20th, Jonathan France and Purity. You're going to want to get the book and read it and then join us on the air for this book club. 
Now we're going to check in with Ronald Mallett. He's a UConn physics professor, and he is uh, known nationally, probably internationally, as one of the people researching the question of time travel. And one reason we have you here today is that uh, here in 2015, it's uh, the 100th anniversary of Einstein's general theory of relativity. It's also um, a sad occasion for you, the 60th anniversary, I believe, of the death of your father, which is one of the things that propelled you into the subject area. So for people who don't remember, remind us of that story, why you became interested in the possibility of time travel. Yeah, sure, Colin, because it is extremely important. It explains why I'm also interested in general relativity, too, and why Einstein's life was so important to me. Um, I grew up in the Bronx, and this was from 1945 to 1955, when my father came back from the Second World War, uh, he used the GI Bill to become a television repairman. And he had four children. I was the oldest of those four. Thing is, is that uh, for me, he was uh, like uh, Superman. He was like perfect. He, he worked hard, but he had a lot of time for the family. And I felt always like the heir apparent. I mean, uh, he gave me all sorts of uh, scientific toys like gyroscopes and crystal radio sets. And uh, he loved to read, so I loved to read. And the thing is, is that he was a lot of fun, too. What we didn't know was that he had a weak heart, and he died suddenly of a massive heart attack, and he was only 33 years old. And my world just fell apart. I mean, I was completely devastated. I mean, for me, the sun rose and set on him, so for me, it was like the sun didn't even matter anymore. So uh, I actually became a depressed kid, and this went on for about a year, and people were concerned about me. As I said, I loved to read, and I loved reading science fiction. And about a year after he died, I came across the book that changed my life. It was a classic illustrated version of H.G. Wells' classic, The Time Machine. And when I read the beginning of it, it said, scientific people know very well that time is just a kind of space, and we can move forward and backward in time just as we can in space. And when I read that, that was a life preserver for me because I thought, this is it. If I could build a time machine, then I can go back in time and see him again and tell him what was going to happen and maybe you know save him. So that became my obsession. And uh, the thing is, is that not surprisingly, it was actually a private obsession because I knew that people were already concerned about me, so I didn't want to tell anyone that I wanted to build a time machine because even at the age of 11, I thought that probably wouldn't lead to good results. But that was the beginning. The thing is, is that I even put uh, old parts that my mother had kept from my father's radio and televisions together, and I put it with bicycle hoops and everything that looked like the cover of this Classics Illustrated. When I switched it on, nothing, of course, happened. And I was uh, disappointed but not discouraged because it said scientific people know very well. So I knew that maybe I had to learn something about science, but I wasn't sure exactly what. And it was about, um, oh, a year or two after that, when I was about 12 or 13, that I came across the second book that changed my life. Uh, We were very poor after my father died. In fact, I mean, we dropped from the middle class and was really in a state of poverty. So uh, I didn't have the allowance my father used to give me when I would answer his mathematical questions correctly, that is. Uh, But my mother was really helping, and she tried to scrape together. And I used to take rags to the uh, Salvation Army to get little money to uh, go to the Salvation Army and buy books. I had a very strong book habit. And the one time when I went in, 
I saw this book, a paperback, that had a picture of Einstein on the cover. It had Einstein standing next to an hourglass. So even before I opened up the book, I could tell just from the cover that this must have something to do, Einstein must have something to do with time. It's always been an interesting coincidence for me that Einstein died in the same year that my father died, 1955. Now, even though it was a popular book, I mean, I didn't have the background to completely understand it, but I did get the essence of it. According to Einstein, the river of time, the flow of it, can be altered. It's not something that's fixed. You can alter the course of time. And I knew if I could understand Einstein, then I would be able to understand exactly how maybe a time machine could be built. So that was the beginning of my obsession with Einstein. So those were the two things. Science fiction of H.G. Wells, you know, I'd say sparked my imagination. And then the knowledge part of it came from Einstein. Uh, I want to come back to that question of imagination and the way in which it ultimately feeds uh, knowledge. But um, we should also say that the, that whole idea of building tinkering and stuff like that, that's that's probably in your genes. I mean, your father was like that. I, I think I'm correct that the night that he died, he had set up some kind of practical joke in the bathroom. <laughs> that's that's exactly right, Carl. The thing is, is that uh, the night he died, it was actually my parents were celebrating their 11th wedding anniversary and had friends over. My father had wired the uh, toilet seat so that whenever you lifted the seat and actually you had music coming on. Uh, he was a real practical joker, and I think that's why all of his friends loved him as well as us. And that was one of the things that he did was uh, he was very good at electronics. And it's, it's funny because um, it wasn't until years, many, many years later, I have to say, that whenever I had um, written a book about my work, uh, Time Traveler, they wanted pictures. And what I put pictures into the book, what startled me was the fact it was a picture of my father behind the television set working. And the pose that he has behind that was exactly the pose of the Time Traveler in the Classics Illustrated version. If you look at them next to each other, it looks like the same sort of thing. So it was clear that on some subconscious level, I knew that somehow this tinkering with electronics or something to do with science that way was going to uh, be necessary. So that's, but as I said, that didn't occur to me until many years later. We're talking to Ron Mallett, and in fact, Dr. Mallett will be part of a conversation called Sci-Fi Meets Reality at Nick's on Front Street uh, in Hartford, uh, and that is scheduled for September 17th. That'll be at 6 p.m., and you can find out uh, more information, I'm sure, from Nick's, or uh, is there a website where people can find out about yes, that? Yes, they can actually, uh, at the UConn alumni website, they can actually go to that website find out more additional information. And uh, it should be, it's going to be a fascinating event. I'm just one of four speakers. Mm-hmm. There's actually going to be a speaker from, uh, who's uh, from English, a speaker from political science, and a speaker from cell biology and uh, molecular and cell biology. So we're going to be talking about how science fiction meets reality, which is something that's been a major theme in my life. All right. So, um, you know, we're sort of checking in with you. We've talked to you before about um, the the bulk of your career really has been spent um, exploring some of these questions, and specifically a question, uh, a formula, and then a related set of ideas and experiments that would, in fact, um, somehow or other alter or twist, I guess, time, right? This is the thing that you really want to do. That's right. 
And and so I don't know if there's a layman's way. In a way, what you're really talking about, we did a show about black holes a week or so ago. You're kind of talking about creating an artificial black hole, right? Well, in a way, it's almost like an artificial uh, rotating black hole. Mm. Uh, normal black holes will actually slow time down. If you get close to them, according to Einstein's general theory of relativity, the stronger gravity is, the more time will slow down. And so if you get close to a black hole, time will slow down. And when I'm talking about time and time measurement, I'm talking about not just mechanical devices. Your heart, for instance, is a clock. That means your heart rate would slow down the closer you got to a black hole. You wouldn't notice that, but people who were watching you as you got close to the black hole would actually see your heart rate slow down and your metabolism slow. So you would not age as much as everyone else. Mm -hmm. This would mean that if you got close enough to a black hole, only hours may pass for you, whereas decades may be passing for everyone else. So a non-rotating black hole allows you to have a natural time machine. turns out that an extension of Einstein's theory for rotating black holes allows a twisting of space and time. And this rotation is what causes loops in time to occur. So if you think of time as going normally from the past, present, to the future, if you can create a loop out of time, then you can go from the past, present, to the future, but then you've made time into a loop, so you can go from the future back to the past. So rotating black holes allow for the possibility of time travel to the past. And that was known by physicists um, actually since the 60s, theoretically, of course, we haven't um, been able to get out to a rotating black hole to do it, but in principle, that's it. Now, my work was to use a different aspect of Einstein's theory. I mean, everyone's familiar with the fact that matter can create gravity, and that, of course, is the same thing in uh, uh, Newton's theory. Newton's theory, you know, the gravity of the sun keeps the Earth in orbit, and the gravity of the Earth keeps us anchored, and so on. But in Einstein's theory, not only can matter create gravity, but light can create gravity. And that aspect of Einstein's theory is what I used, because if gravity can affect time and light can create gravity, then light can affect time. And that was my breakthrough. And I realized that I could mimic this notion of a rotating black hole by using circulating light, that is to say, to create a light beam that was going around and around and around in a loop. And you can do this. There's actually a device that's called a ring laser that can actually produce that. And I'm a theoretician, I should mention. I use mathematics. Einstein was a theoretician. I use equations to try to understand how the world works. So what I did was to solve Einstein's gravitational field equations, and I found out that circulating light can actually cause a twisting of space and time. And the analogy that I like to use to give people an idea of what, what this means is that uh, think, imagine that you have a cup of coffee in front of you and think of the coffee in the cup as being like empty space and think of the spoon as being like a circulating light beam, okay? And so you know what's going to happen to the coffee if you stir it with the spoon. It's going to start swirling around. It's going to create sort of a vortex in the coffee. Well, that's what the circulating light beam is going to do. It's actually going to stir the empty space and it's going to create sort of a vortex in the space, now, the thing is, is that you might say, well, how do you see that? Because it's empty space. Well, if you come back to the coffee, if you drop a coffee bean in there and you stir the coffee, the coffee's going to drag the coffee bean around, okay? So you can actually see the effect of the stirring of the coffee by seeing the coffee dragging the coffee bean around. The thing that plays the role of the coffee bean in this proposed experiment 
is a neutron. A neutron is a part of every atom, and a neutron spins like a little top, okay? It has an axis of spin, just like the Earth. And it turns out that if you put a neutron into the empty space and you turn on the circulating light beam, then as the space gets twisted around and creates this vortex in space, it'll actually drag the spinning neutron around. So even though you won't see directly the space being dragged around, you'll see the neutron being dragged around. This has a technical name. It's called frame dragging. It means that the frame of reference of the objects being dragged around. And this process, which I proposed, is called frame dragging by light. And the thing is, is as I said, I developed the equations for that. What I also found was a further extension was the fact that if this twisting of space becomes strong enough, then you get a process that's like the sort of process you have with a rotating black hole. That is to say, the straight line of time okay, go, that's going from the past, present, and future, that line gets twisted into a loop. And what I was able to show is that you could actually go from the past, present, to the future, and from the future back into the past. So by using a circulating light beam and twisting space, you could eventually twist time, and it could lead to a, a time machine that would allow you to go back into the past. You know, the uh, the coffee cup analogy makes me think of the, the Twinkie analogy in Ghostbusters. <laughs> uh, and at one point, I think somebody said, that's a big Twinkie. Well, you need a you need a big coffee cup, right? You need a big coffee cup with a lot of power in it to create the fact that you're talking about right now. We're not talking – I mean, obviously, if that were not the case, somebody would do this right exactly. away. Exactly. In fact, you're, you're exactly right. And there's two processes that are involved in this, and it's important to realize that because there's first I have to demonstrate – that this circulating light beam will cause a twisting of space. It turns out that that doesn't require as much energy, and that is something that's within our technological capabilities right now. It's just that no one had developed the theory to propose this particular effect. But the that can be, but it requires some ingenuity, some engineering ingenuity to to, uh, to do it. But still, it's within the realm of possibility. The thing is, is that to go beyond that, to go from the twisting of space to the twisting of time, now that's something else again, because the energy that are going to be required to twist space enough so that you can twist time into a loop could truly be stellar. I mean, it could be enormous, and that would require a whole new understanding or a whole new technology that um, would need to be developed. But that's something that's not surprising. That's something that um, even faced us with nuclear energy. It's interesting. I mean, people are familiar with Einstein's equation equals mc square, and one would have said, well, that was developed back in 1905, so why didn't we have uh, atomic energy back then? Problem is, is that even though the equation says the m in the equation talks about matter and the c in the equation talks about the speed of light squared, and you're multiplying that times the matter, and that's giving you this enormous amount of energy. But how do you do that technologically? Even Einstein wasn't sure that it would be a possibility, engineering-wise. And if it hadn't been for the fact that we had this process that was called chain reaction that was developed, we still wouldn't have it because it's not technologically obvious how you're going to convert matter into energy. So one of the things that we have to learn is just exactly how we might be able to circumvent the enormous amounts of energy that might be required to twist time after you've twisted space. That's UConn physicist Ron Mallett. Uh, he's talking about what it might take to make his dream of a time machine into a reality. Coming up, you're going to hear more from Ron uh, and then more from New Haven filmmaker Gorman Bichard about his most recent documentaries. Run. 
You're listening to The Colin McEnroe Show. Right now, we're talking to UConn physicist Ron Mallett about his theories of time travel. He's currently looking for funding for a feasibility study. If you've got a quarter million uh, dollars lying around, he'd really appreciate it uh, so he can take his ideas and theoretical formulas up to the next level. Here's Dr. Mallett. Even though I have the mathematical development of it, to make it practical, it's going to have to be done in a precise technological way. I actually have a colleague who's an experimental physicist. They said in physics, you have both the sides that are necessary. You have theoretical physics and experimental physics, and both are necessary. And he's... um, specialty is laser physics, and he became interested in proving my theoretical results. What we have to do is develop what's called a feasibility study. Now, that is something that tells us what really is necessary in order to cause the twisting of space. That's the first phase. In other words, this is divided up in two phases. First, showing that space can be twisted. Now, this feasibility study is something that's extremely important. One of the things that people don't realize when it comes to the uh, Wright brothers, you know, uh, a lot of people have this notion that the Wright brothers were these bicycle mechanics who um, had this inspiration and they went out and flew a plane at Kitty Hawk. And it wasn't quite as simple as that. As a matter of fact, what they did was real scientific and engineering studies. They actually built a wind tunnel first, a small wind tunnel, and they actually looked at wing configurations in this wind tunnel. That's precisely the way in which one has to do things. So you might say this feasibility study that we're doing is in the analog of uh, looking at wind tunnel. In other words, what's going to be necessary to show that you can actually twist space by a circulating beam of light? Uh, We estimate, and this is just a rough estimate, that just the feasibility study alone is going to cost probably about a quarter of a million dollars, and that does not going to lead to a time machine. That's just simply a feasibility study. Uh, That sounds like a lot of money, but scientific experiments, real scientific experiments, are very expensive. Sometimes I remind people about the Large Hadron Collider, which people have heard about. This is the uh, collider in Switzerland. And uh, it just recently won some theoreticians the Nobel Prize because of the fact that they discovered what was called the God particle. This is called the Higgs particle. And Higgs was, of course, one of the theoreticians who developed the theory of this. What people don't realize is that Higgs developed the theory of this over 40 years Mm -hmm. before the result came out. And the device that – and it's all it is, this large hadron collider is just simply a device that smashes subatomic particles together. And how expensive is that going to be? Well, it took out it took ten years and about ten billion dollars to show that this uh, God particle, this Higgs particle, you know, exists. So that's why I said that people need to realize that real science uh, is not something that you see in the movies. Uh, sometimes movies uh get a lot of the science right, like the one recent movie, Interstellar. But frequently, one of my other favorite movies is uh, Back to the Future. I love that movie, Mm -hmm. but it is so far from real science. It's just pure entertainment, but it has absolutely nothing to do with real science. So I'm thinking in particular of Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, where he talks about, you know, it's not just knowledge accumulation. The things tend to go to plateau and then 
zoom up. And that's really what you're talking about right, right now. In other words, um, the sort of the static, settled nature of knowledge doesn't really quite accommodate what you're talking about right now. There's probably more theoretical physicists who think this can't happen than think it can happen. Um, so what you're really talking about is one of these transformational moments, as transformational as the development of nuclear energy or uh, uh, heavier-than-air flight. Right, exactly. That, that's precisely right. And the thing is, is that I actually agree with the, my colleagues, you know, the, and this is important, they agree with my math and physics, mm -hmm. okay? That, that's important. What they say, and I don't disagree with them, is the fact that many of them say is the technological side of it. They can even see the space-twisting part of it as being a possibility, uh, but going from that to the twisting of time it's going to require this plateau development that you were talking about. As I said, that's, that's, that's going to be necessary. But that, in fact, is what drives us forward is because we learn something new when we're confronted by a challenge. Uh, this happened in the space program. It's happened in uh, the flight, and it happened with uh, nuclear energy. So it's exciting. We know that theoretically – the basis is correct. My work is anchored in Einstein's general theory of relativity, and that's why I take it seriously as well as my colleagues. The other aspect of it, the technological development, is going to require this sort of plateau development. You're quite right. So, um, you know, if in fact this is the 60th anniversary of the death of your father, that means you're coming up on 70. That's um, right. And so... Um, as you look at the uh, at the rest of your life, I mean, how, how obviously you're incredibly invested in this idea. You're invested in it not only because you're a physicist and you're curious uh, and, and passionate about how the universe works and how this part of the universe works, but as we said from the very beginning, there's this very intense personal connection that you have to it. You know, in the time that's left, um, if you don't see the breakthrough, uh, are you still going to feel like the pursuit of the breakthrough was worth it all? Absolutely, because to me, the journey is just as exciting as the destination, and in many ways, even more exciting. I've had an opportunity to study in an area that uh, it's just been, it's like being in a science fiction movie, uh, and it's been exciting. And not only that, but what I can do is to share with people not just simply the ex excitement of what it is that I'm doing. But one of the things that I found is that when I give talks to students and to adults, I try to get them to understand about what they can accomplish with their own dreams. You know, people sometimes forget that it's necessary to have a dream in order to uh, to have a goal in order to achieve a goal. And especially when I'm talking to young people, and I found that this has been very, very effective, is the fact that I was trying to achieve something that has to do with, it sounds like it's completely, you know, science fiction. And I have actually a, a acquired the theoretical background associated with it. And I try to tell them that there's three things that are necessary for you to accomplish to feel like you've succeeded in life. And that is to say, to have a goal, to have a dream. And... Once you have that, then to develop a strategy for achieving that dream, and then finally, the what I call the self-sweat equity, the investment in yourself of the hard work that's necessary to achieve that. And I, I use my own life as an illustration of that. I mean, I have this dream of wanting to build a time machine. And I knew eventually I was going to have to go to college, 
but we were poor. So college was not something that was automatically in my future. But I developed a strategy. I decided after I got out of high school to uh, go into the military, the Air Force. During This was during the Vietnam War period, and I used the GI Bill, in the sense following my father's footsteps. And then I used that to go to college, and then it was the hard work. It was actually learning all of the mathematics and physics that was going to be necessary in order to achieve this. And I, I have... Um, a stepson that I actually use as an illustration. This have to do with me. He's a jazz musician, an excellent jazz musician. In fact, he's at New York uh, School for Jazz uh, and graduate school there. And he practices, you know, he practices all the time. His dream was to become a great sax player. But his, what his, and his strategy was to go to good schools. And then the equity, sweat equity. It doesn't matter what it is that you're trying to achieve. You can achieve it if you're trying to do those three things. So by using my life and my work, I've been able to share with people the passion that they should be able to bring to their own life and achieve their own dreams. And that's, that's very important to me. And to me, I have accomplished what I set out to do. In a sense, my father, I know, would be proud of what I've been able to accomplish and I know, um, and I'm going to have to say this, I'm a religious person, so I do believe that I'll see him again in any case. But the thing is, is that I would have liked to have seen him in this terrestrial realm. But to me, if I can show people the, the fact that this is a possibility, there will be people who come after me uh, who will be able to achieve what I have. I'll, and I hope to be seen as one of the pioneers. And that will be enough for me. Um, I thought this interview was almost over, but now I have to ask you about this. I'm, I'm always fascinated, and there's more and more reporting done about um, people who are science, scientists who are also religious people. And there's, I think, a prejudice that some people have that those two things are incompatible, that you can't possibly be religious and then be rigorously scientific. We're finding out that that's not universally true. But I would imagine, once again, that there are probably more physicists who are not at all religious than there are physicists who are religious. Well, that's actually, I don't think that that's true. I think that what there is, is I think that there's a distribution uh, of people that are, there are actually believers, there are agnostics, and there are atheists. The thing is, is that sometimes the people that we hear about, the more prominent people that we hear about, uh, they happen to be uh, atheists. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that that's necessarily so. And so I think it's important for people to realize that there is no real incompatibility between it. It's just that what one feels is what whatever one feels is necessary for their own comfort in the universe. And then Einstein himself often talked in very spiritual and even in theological fact, terms. In fact, he did. He, in, yeah. in fact, for him, there did, there did exist a God. For him, the God wasn't a personal God, but it was. But he actually believed that there was a God, and he actually said, "I believe in the God of Spinoza." That was an actual quote of his. And if you look at what Spinoza believed, Spinoza actually believed that God was, in fact, this natural order of things that underlies our existence and makes our existence necessary, and that this provides us with the order and the understand forces of the universe that we have. And this is what Einstein believed. And that's a very religious notion. Yeah, he also, uh, I think he said that uh, 
when you really get down to it, the most pressing question is, is the universe a friendly place or not? Which, when you think about it, is kind of a spiritual question as oh, well. It is. It is. So, uh, as I said, I think that it's important to realize that there really is an, an incompatibility between the two. It's just that people have, uh, unfortunately, they have a notion that there is, and it's not. We're talking to Ron Mallett. He is a UConn physics professor. He's the author of Time Traveler, uh, and he will be on, on September 17th, which I believe is two days from now, at something called Sci-Fi Meets Reality at Nick's on Front Street uh, at 6 p.m. We also know that if you have a quarter million dollars sitting around, <laughs> he, would like, uh, he would like to have it. So that you can say when people say, well, what's your money doing right now? Uh, you can say, oh, well, I gave it to somebody who's doing uh, a feasibility study on time travel. And that sounds more impressive than I put it in municipal bonds or something like that. So give Ron your quarter million dollars. And then very quickly, uh, I know that uh, Spike Lee back in 2008, I think, acquired the, the rights to your story. So what's happening? How soon is the Denzel Washington movie <laughs> right. coming out? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, just back um, in August, I visited Spike up in uh, Martha's Vineyard. And uh, it was very nice, a pleasant meeting. What happened is Spike has a new movie that's coming out. It's called Chirac. That uh, name is a contraction of Chicago and Iraq. Mm-hmm. And it, it sort of alludes to the violence in Chicago being like the, uh, the violence in Iraq. He was giving a presentation of it, and I told him that I was going to come to see him, and, uh, and he was there. And I, we talked about the fact that um, we're going to get together to talk about what direction we're going to mo- make with the movie right now because he has written a script with it. That is done. Um, and he's been marketing the script around or taking it around. I feel that uh, the script needs to have some adjustment, and uh, so we're going to be trying to discuss uh, what to do with that adjustment of the script. So that's where things are right now. It's going to happen, but uh, you know these things take a long time. Right. We know that time slows down in the event horizon around a black hole, and it really slows down when you're trying to make a major motion picture. That's right. Uh, So that's just a whole other experiment in physics as well. Ron Mallett, UConn physics professor uh, and a leading proponent of time travel, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much, Colin. I always enjoy being here. Mm -hmm. Okay, now coming up, we'll talk to New Haven-based filmmaker Gorman Bouchard about his upcoming documentaries on animal cruelty and the New Haven Pizza Wars. Frustrating. I went back in time, changed a bunch of stuff, and now nothing is different. I'm going to write an angry letter to King Kanye and then take it personally to the castle with my jetpack. Today's show was produced by the big kid, Katie Talarski and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Dan Schultz. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Michael J. Fox. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff's Mallet River Cruise on the Danube in 350 A.D., Visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, meet Ben Vereen like you've never met him before. And now, back to Colin.
Uh, I want to take this moment once again to remind you, October 20th on this show, we're having a book club. We're all going to read Purity by Jonathan Franzen. So that means you, too. I mean, if you're willing to, anyway, get the book, uh, read it, be part of a very exciting discussion. One of the people we want to catch up with today is Gorman Bichard, New Haven-based novelist, screenwriter, filmmaker, pizza snob, and many other things as well. Before we even talk to Gorman, uh, let's hear a little bit uh, from the trailer of one of two documentaries that are kind of on his radar right now as he... uh, as he makes films. Many of you may remember Gucci the dog and the senseless act of violence that left the puppy scarred for life. They had uh, taken him and uh, strung him up by his neck in a tree and they were slapping him. And then they got tired of that and one of the guys went to his car and got some lighter fluid and spurted his head and his neck and they set him on fire. Anybody who could see what had happened to that dog would have to be moved and would have to speak up or step up or do something. This is a man that was standing on his front porch that didn't know what was coming. It is a six-month jail sentence and a $500 fine for a man found guilty of beating and setting fire to Gucci the dog. Gucci and Doug James came to the legislature, and that's what started turning the tide. Gucci was our spokes dog. Gucci was the face of animal cruelty in Alabama. All right, that's the trailer from a movie called A Dog Named Gucci, a Gorman Bouchard movie. Uh, It's already done, and I believe, uh, Gorman, you're actually starting to play at festivals with this, right? Yeah, yes. We've started to play at festivals, and uh, we actually have a screening in two weeks on the 23rd down in Mobile, which was Gucci's hometown. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about this story. I mean, the trailer gives most of maybe what you need to know, but what, what is this the story of? Well, it's the story of a man who just happened to be standing on his porch waiting to sell his house, and he sees this horrible thing happen to a dog a few houses down, and he did something about it. Not only did he save the dog, uh, but when the uh, people who did it, uh, who set the dog on fire, only received slaps on the wrist, he worked for six years to uh, change the laws in Alabama. So Alabama became which is uh, Alabama so often looked upon as like the last in everything or second to last after, you know, not counting Mississippi here. Um, but in this case, it was the 13th state to enact a felony abuse law for, uh, for animal abuse. Um, and, you know, so in, in that respect, it was, it was very much ahead of the curve. And that's all because of Doug James and this dog named Gucci that was always by his side. And Gucci lived for 16 years. I mean, it's story. But it's, it's basically he's the Rocky of dogs. I mean, he just, you know, he just rose he just rose up and and really became the face of animal abuse in the South. And that face, we should say, is a disfigured face. I mean, the dog has a mm-hmm. kind of beauty to it, but uh, it's, uh, it's the, the, the scars were permanent, the damage that was described there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There. And, and so how did you find out about this? And, and why did you, I mean, you could make documentaries about anything. Why this? Well, um, after doing three rock and roll documentaries, uh, uh my wife and I were talking a lot. We really wanted to do something that had more of an impact on the world. Uh, and our passion is definitely uh, dogs in terms of, you know, a, a, a social, our social passion would be dogs. Uh, you know, obviously pizza, which you mentioned already for me. But, um, and we kept looking for um, stories. But every, in every case, it was always like the dog's horribly abused and dies. And they either never find the person or the person gets slapped on the wrist. And that's it. No, nothing really ever happens. 
And my wife had sent me the story, uh, actually, the day before we were about to go away on our 20th anniversary vacation. And I remember saying to her, don't, I don't want to read this. I don't want to get annoyed before I go because these things would just end up making me very angry as to, you know, that nothing was happening. And she said, no, read this one. It's got a happy ending. And I read it. And, like, it, it had a three-X structure, it, you know. It, it, it had everything you possibly could use for a, uh, for a movie. And we found everyone involved, including Gucci was owned by a 15-year-old runaway girl. And my wife even was able to track her down. And she came, uh, when she talked to us, the amazing thing about it was that she said that night, Doug James basically saved her life as well because he was responsible for getting her off the streets. Why, why did the people who did this to the dog do it? What, was their motivation ever clear? In a nutshell, uh, basically, they wanted more from the 15-year-old than she was willing to give them. Mm -hmm. And uh, when she said no to their advances, they wanted to teach her a lesson. So they, they strung this dog up in a tree uh, and began to beat him and then set him on fire. This is just yes. this kind of – did you track those people down? Did, were those people willing to talk to you? Uh, one of them had contacted us, but, you know, I didn't want to ever give a face to the people who did this. So um, he had contacted us, and uh, when when we did end up talking to him just on the phone, it seemed more he was more interested in just getting paid to talk to us, uh, and you know, which again didn't. It's not like he was ready to apologize or anything like that. It was it was more about seeking out money. So it it, it our, our was a conscious decision never to. We never show the face of the abusers in the film. And so the the part of the issue was that Alabama, like a lot of states, doesn't have a specific felony law for this. And mm -hmm. So the original sentence was uh, six months in jail and a five hundred dollar right. fine. Um, yeah. so, and so uh, this guy, Doug James, I, I, my my sense of him is that he wasn't a natural, highly experienced political operative or a guy who had a lot of familiarity with the notion yeah. of reforming laws. He was a college professor uh, in communications, and fifty eight years old, and. Uh, yeah, it, it basically he had no idea what was just about to happen with his life when he stepped off that porch and ran after the dog. And it was six years of work. Is that right? Yep, correct. It took them six years to pass. Um, uh, that uh, Gucci happened in, in May of 1994 and the law passed in uh, late November of uh, t uh, the year 2000. So um, I, I think at one point I saw somebody talking about Gucci in the past tense. So Gucci's no longer with us. Correct. Gucci passed uh, in March of actually on my birthday, March fifteenth in, in year two thousand ten. So were you Basically. able were you able to get um, footage of Gucci in in, in life? No, and for, I not that I could shoot, but we've got tons of. I mean, when I when we went to see Doug, who is now you know seventy eight, when we when we go to interview him, uh, and he says, "Well, I threw away so much of the stuff," and he said, "I've got what I've got is over on my bed in the guest room." So we go into the guest room, and there the entire bed is filled with boxes. <laughs> uh, we spent a week scanning all the stuff that he kept. That, so I don't, I can't even imagine how much he had other than that. Uh, and then we see him a couple of days later in his office at the college. Um, as he was, at, he's a, he was a professor at Spring Hill College in Mobile, and uh, he says, "Oh, I found more stuff." And he gives us another four or five boxes. So we had plenty. We even have like we even have uh, Gucci appearing in the in the film, and they uh, play Annie as as the dog Sandy. This, um, you know, you sort of alluded to this. So, I mean, to the, the extent that Northerners have kind of stereotypes or mental pictures uh, of 
people from Alabama. It's probably that kind of sense of rednecks who are maybe not over sentimental about dogs uh, and, and, you know, who see dogs maybe in a somewhat more utilitarian way as hunting dogs or, or you know, working dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did some of your own attitudes get changed a little bit by the people you met down there? Oh, my God. I, 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 I think... I think everyone has it completely wrong. I'll, I will take the Southern hospitality and Southern charm and Southern politeness over Northeastern rudeness any day. And I think that they're a lot more advanced than we give them credit for. And I think we're a lot more backwards in many cases than than we have great laws in Connecticut for animal abuse. Most of the time, they're not being used. Most of the time, the police do not arrest. If they do, the prosecutors are not prosecuting. And if the prosecutors prosecute, we have judges to just either nully it or give the person a slap on the wrist. So we are no more ahead of the curve than they are in terms of animal abuse. So um, what happens next? Um, You've got this film available to go to film festivals. I assume Mm -hmm. you'd like wider distribution. Well, actually, yeah. We're locking that all down right now. Uh, The film actually has this We Are the World uh, sort of end song that Dean Falcone in, uh, here in New Haven got together for me and with some ridiculous like names. I'm, I mean, like mega rock stars singing this song. Well, can, you mention one of, can, can you mention one or two of the names? Uh, I'll mention Nora Jones. Mm-hmm. How's that? That's a good name. Uh, and uh, and uh, this this song is going to be a massive release in April. Uh, with a big publicity push behind it, which was the reason we did the song. And all the pro- all the proceeds from the actual sales of the song will go towards different animal charities. Uh, but we're also going to release the movie that same week. So it'll be out in, in the third week of April. It'll be out on uh, DVD, VOD, uh, you know, streaming on iTunes, basically the usual suspects. Yeah. So uh, just to switch gears here for a second, I was at uh, Lyle Lovett's concert in uh, Bridgeport about about a month ago, and he's up on stage. He started talking about he'd been interviewed for this documentary about New Haven pizza. And he went on. It's too bad you don't have footage of that, because not only did he go on about it at some length and discuss it with his band right there on stage, but he changed the set list and sang a special song that was dedicated to New Haven pizza. And I I, I just turned to the person sitting next to me and said, that's Gorman's movie, obviously. So I assume you interviewed. Lyle Lovett for your yeah um... he, he was great he was he was great um, yeah and the thing was all he knew was Peppy's so what we did that night was we brought him Sally's as well and the entire show that night was him and John Hyatt and one of them would they would constantly between songs be holding up the pizza boxes and <laughs> you know getting different rounds of applause from the audience it was it was it was a, a celebration of, of two of the three great pizza places in New Haven. So this is a documentary. Uh, this is not the Gucci documentary. This is a documentary no. uh, called Pizza, A Love Story that I know yes. has been at least in your heart for a long time. And, and now yes. it's starting to come together. So once again, give us kind of a thumbnail of this. This is really about, as you say, there are only three pizza places in the world that matter. Yes, that basically. And that's 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 the honest to God truth. We all know this for a fact. Um, and, uh, the, it's, it, yeah, but it's, it's not just about the pizza place. It really traces the Italian migration, uh, to New Haven in the late 1800s because of the Sergeant Locke company and, uh, how they settled in the Worcester Square area and the development of these three pizza places that, you know, that are legendary. I mean, when you look at national polls, you know, a hundred pizza, the hundred best pizza places, New Haven will have three in the top 10 or 12. I think it was top 11 this year. Actually, we had three of them, number one, five, and 11. Uh, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's, 
it, it, it's legendary for a reason. I mean, the pizza is just that good. And, you know, and I have the last interview with Flo from Sally's, who is the, you know, the, the last of the matriarchs, you know, uh, you know, the last of the original owners from one of the three places. Um, and we have just amazing pictures. I mean, and the biggest problem was finding pictures of modern from the late 30s and 40s. And it, that's what's taken us so long. And we finally started you know, uh, finding them, believe it or not, just by buying them on eBay. Right. So the, I've seen some of the photographs and it really does look like a scene out of the, you know, the sort of beginning part of Godfather Two, the earliest. Mm-hmm. So these are kind of old Italian enclave type neighborhoods with these old cars. And there are these three iconic pizza parlor names. And the other thing you have photos of, I know, are a lot of I don't know whether you, whether you got to interview Bill Clinton, but you've got Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan. I mean, this is one of these also these kind of politicians rite of passage things to do. Eat New Haven pizza. Well, yeah, I mean, well, for one, uh, Bill and Hillary lived at Sally's uh, <laughs> when they were going to Yale. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were there constantly. Um, and uh, as as was one of Bush's daughters, I think uh, the two Bushes, the two presidents, both preferred Pepe's. Uh, I mean, but it, it's, there's definitely a, there's this crazy celebrity and politician history with, with all of these places. Obviously, with Sally's, Frank Sinatra used to send his, he sent his driver from Hoboken. To pick up pies at Sally's. Um, I mean, even it, 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 forget even Lyle Lovitz. You have someone like you too. When they play anywhere in the tri-state area, they have it in the rider that they have pizzas uh, brought in from Sally's. All right. So, uh, what's the timetable now for Pizza a Love Story? Wow. Uh, we're hoping Pizza a Love Story will be ready for the uh, our our Yale Film Festival, the New Haven Docs, uh, the New Haven Documentary Film Festival in June. Uh, hoping. Keeping fingers crossed. I'm also editing another. I, am, I I also in the middle here, sort of to give myself a breather from animal abuse. Uh, I'm working on a fourth rock and roll documentary as well. So, are you at liberty to say who that's about? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. It's about it's a, it's a, instead of going backwards, I went to someone who's brand new and is about to put out her fourth record. A woman named Lydia Lovelace. As we end this thing, we can go out with a piece of music. Why don't you tell us which uh, Lydia Lovelace tune we're going to end this segment with, and we'll wrap wow. it in later. Yeah. If you can pull pretty much anything, I would go with the song Crazy from her second-to-last record, which is just amazing, amazing alt-country song. Gorman Bouchard, great to talk to you. Great to catch up. Uh, Gorman Bouchard, who is the uh, impresario behind What Were We Thinking uh, films. You just heard about uh, a couple of them. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much. Ugh, I ate too much pizza. I'm gonna go back in time and fix this. Ugh, I ate too much pizza. I'm gonna go back in time and fix this. Ugh, I ate too much pizza.